You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So we are continuing our sermon series on James this week. Over the last three weeks now, we have been allowing James to show us what it means to live a life of faith. And James makes it really clear that faith is not simply a matter of belief. It's not just speaking the right words. We, when we come to the creed, we talk about proclaiming the content of our faith, but it's not just affirmation and belief. A life of faith will change the way that we see the world around us. We will perceive things differently if we are looking at the world through eyes of faith. And a life of faith will change the way that we act. It will be evident in the things that we do that we believe in a God who has revealed himself to us. That we believe in Jesus, his son, our savior. And so this is true in many ways. James applies this principle that faith changes the way we perceive the world and it changes the way we act in a variety of ways. But one of the ways that he applied that in chapter 1 was in how we view wealth. In chapter 1, which we looked at, uh, the first part of chapter 1, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, verses 9 through 11, James wrote, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. When you evaluate your self-worth through the eyes of faith, money has nothing to do with it which is often a very different message than we get from the culture at large. If you are poor, your lack has not kept you from receiving the greatest gift that God has to offer. You have been given eternal life if you have faith in Jesus. You, Jesus himself, is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. You have been raised up and glorified with him as he has gone to sit at the right hand of the Father. Money can buy no greater glory. And if you are rich, all that you own pales in comparison to the same gift of salvation, to the same gift of glorification in Christ. Your stuff will fade away and decay. But your hope in Jesus and the life that you have in Him will last forever. Our shared faith puts us on the same level. Where you, whether you come into this room with a lot or a little, your value and worth is not any different. Now, as we move into chapter 2, James does something that he does several times throughout this letter. He takes a theme that he's already introduced and expands upon it. And in chapter 2, he's again returning to this theme of how we view the wealthy and the poor. But instead of saying, how do you view yourself? He's saying, how do you view others? And he applies it to this situation that is kind of hypothetical, and yet the way that he writes about it, the specifics that he gives to the situation, suggests that perhaps it was happening in the church to whom he was writing. 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to James chapter 2 to follow along with what we're going to be talking about. In James chapter 2, James wrote about this, this situation where a wealthy person and a poor person walk in the door to the church gathering at the same time. And he says, are you going to treat them the same? Are you going to recognize their equality before God? Or are you going to go offer the rich person the best seat in the house? And tell the poor person, you can sit on the floor. You can just sort of be tucked away in a corner there where you're out of the way. How are you going to treat people that walk through the door? And it's not that hard to imagine that situation in our own time and place. If we had two guests today, one who was wealthy, obviously well-off, and one who was poor, would we treat them the same? And how far would our answer go and still remain yes? What if the person who came in was not just wealthy, but someone who was a celebrity, either in the culture at large or maybe within the church culture? Would we fawn over them if they came in? And would we offer them the best? Would we treat them differently because of their status? What if it was somebody who was so wealthy that if they came and stayed at Christ Our Hope, it would change our whole financial outlook. We could go and get our own building because if they tithe, it's enough to double our our income. What if it was somebody like that? How would we feel about trying to keep that person in our church? Would we treat them differently, give them special honor? And honestly, I think for the most part, we would do well. I don't doubt your ability to show welcome to anybody who comes through the door. I've seen it time and again that you have been a people who are willing to welcome every person who comes in. And I think that's one of the strengths of Christ, our hope. And besides, we don't have better seats to offer anybody. Everybody gets to sit on the same thing. But despite perhaps those initial appearances of of, of equality, it's incredibly hard not to judge a person based on our first impressions of them. In fact, all of us do it all of the time. We make quick judgments based on our first impressions. Um, We can't help it. In his book, Blink, Malcolm Gladwell talks about these snap judgments that people make every day. And he actually says that these quick decisions that people make are a central part of what it means to be human. In other words, it's not something you can just override and stop doing. It's just part of what it means. It's how we're built to process things. And a lot of times, that comes in handy. In many ways, it's helpful for us to make quick judgments. It allows us to react to danger more quickly. If you've ever seen videos of dad reflexes, where they seem to like suddenly jump up and like, there's this one where this, this dad like does a roll and grabs these two kids that are about to have a car come and crash in them, and like comes up on the other side, and you're like, how did he even react to that? What's going on? But he made this quick judgment and acted, and it saved someone's life. Or if you listen to sports, to professional athletes talk about playing sports, they have said that if I can make you think about what you're going to do next, I've already won. Because if I can make you think about it, then you're too slow. You've got to be able to make a snap judgment. Or if you've ever had a conversation where you kind of detected that something was off, something didn't feel right, and it was because you could have this underlying sense of dishonesty in a conversation, and, and later on you're able to prove yourself right, but you didn't know why it was wrong at the moment. You just knew something was wrong about this. All the time, these judgments serve us well, but when we are trying to serve to live a life of faith, when we are trying to serve 
to see the world through God's eyes, sometimes these rapid judgments of people can work against us. Psychologists describe a phenomenon known as the halo effect, which is that we will make judgments of somebody based on one characteristic and then decide that other things must be true about them based on that characteristic, even if they're not really related. And one of the most pronounced ways that this occurs is we tend to make judgments of people based on their physical attractiveness. They've done studies where um, they had people grading papers, and they had, a, had them grade it with no picture at all and see what grade they give. And then they'd provide pictures of, like, give the same paper to a group of people. And in one of them, you have a picture of, like, an attractive student. And another one, you have somebody that's not as physically attractive, and people continually give the higher grade to the attractive person, even though they think that they're being unbiased. They have this subtle inclination that this first impression must mean that I should give this person the benefit of the doubt in other areas. And it's easy to find us doing the same. Somebody that seems like they're put together, somebody that, that has wealth comes in, and it comes with that. They, they, they present themselves better to us and so we make judgments about them, about their, where they fit into the church. Maybe not with whether we're going to give them a good seat or a bad seat, but whether or not they are somebody who is going to be adequate for service to the church, whether they're going to be somebody who can help us. We make those kind of judgments, and when we do so, we are not seeing how God sees. Because over and over again, the Bible points out that God does not judge as the world does. He does not look at those exterior measures. He judges by the heart. And the whole basis of ethics in James is to say, you are to do as your heavenly Father does. We look at who God is, what his character is, and that's how we are supposed to be acting. So when we look to the Bible and we see how God judges, we see that when he chose Abraham, to be the one through whom he would bless the nations. He picked this man out of all others who at the time was not wealthy. He didn't have necessarily a whole lot. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. I'm not going to take somebody that's already successful and planted. I'm going to take this nomad walking away from his home and it's going to be, he'll be the one through whom I'll bless everyone. And then just in case, because Abraham grew in wealth as God blessed him, and just in case we didn't think that his wealth was the reason for success, a couple generations later, all of Abraham's descendants end up as slaves in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to work through the world, not through the powerful nation, but through the slaves, through the weak, the powerless. And it is through them that I am going to bless the nations. They will be my people, and I will show you what I can do. When the people got a king, their first king was a man who looked like a king. Saul looked taller than everybody else. He looked proud. He was strong. And he led them for a little while, and then his heart faltered and fell. And he said, God said, go and anoint a new king. So Samuel went to anoint David. And he came to the sons of Jesse, and son after son came to him. And he was sure the oldest looked like a king. And then if it wasn't him, it must be the second, because he looks kingly. And he went down the line until it's the one they had to go grab out of the field, the youngest son, and said, this is the one whom God chooses, because I'm not looking at the outside. I'm not looking at the external appearance. I am looking at the heart. And this pattern continues in the New Testament. It's evident in Mary. God decides to send his son into the world, and he chooses a teenage girl of no social standing, who's not yet married, and says, through you I will bring my son. I will bless the world through you.
He works through those whom the world would reject. And Jesus himself is the ultimate example of this. He didn't come with mighty power. He didn't come as a conqueror. He came as one who was a carpenter and then an itinerant preacher, one that the world rejected. Paul puts this beautifully in the hymn at the beginning of Philippians when he says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And it is through this form of a servant that God decided to bless the world. God sees things differently than us. And he had that in mind when he formed his people as the church. Paul puts it most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, when he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. When we judge as the world judges, when we allow appearances of wealth or attractiveness to color the way that we think about people and their worth in God's eyes, God's eyes we are often wrong because wealth has no value to God. Your appearance has no particular value to God. He looks into the heart, and the rich are no more righteous than the poor. In fact, if you look at verses 6 and 7 in James here, he reminds them that many of the people who are wealthy were the ones who were oppressing the church. It was the wealthy who were dragging them into the courts. It was the wealthy who were blaspheming the name of Christ. And I don't think he's necessarily saying it's the same people walking through the door who are doing this. But he's saying, if you think that wealth makes someone righteous, look at these others who are injuring you and hurting you. Their wealth did not make them righteous. And maybe that was a reason that the church wanted to have wealthy people on their side. And God says, that's not how you don't fight back by getting the wealthy and influential people to come into the church. Instead, you trust me and you trust my judgments and I will care for you. But it's not simply either. We don't withhold judgment simply because our judgments can be wrong. Because the warning that James gives is not ultimately be more careful with your judgments. Wait a little longer so you're not making those snap decisions. And it's not even a flip script where he's saying, we'll give favor to the poor instead of to the rich. He points instead to the command to love your neighbor as yourself and says that all partiality is wrong. In verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He puts the law of love up against showing partiality, saying you can't do these two things at the same time. And we most often think of that law of love as it was given by Jesus as a summary of the law. When someone asked him what are the most important commandments, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all of the law and the prophets. And yet, 
when we look back at where that quote came from, in our Old Testament reading today from Leviticus chapter 19, and we look at what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, it's right in the midst of laws that are there to protect the way that Israel treats people, and they're to treat people with equity. And it specifically has laws that say that protect the poor, such as don't glean up to the edge of your, don't reap up to the edge of your fields. Leave enough for people who have nothing to be able to go get some food. And things that protect perhaps the wealthy by saying, also, you're not supposed to steal. Essentially, you have, you're supposed to give enough for everybody, and then you're also not supposed to go take from people on, um, against the law. And this is most clear, perhaps, when it gets down to verse 15 in that passage, where it talks about court. And it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. If we are to follow the law of love, the law of love excludes partiality. It does not allow us to make judgments between the wealthy and the poor and say that one is better than the other, one is more righteous than the other. Instead, we are to love them all. But ultimately, James goes even further than his appeal to the law in Leviticus because he contrasts mercy and judgment. He says that when you are showing partiality, you become evil judges, and you're not supposed to judge, because we are people who are under mercy. If God judged rightly against us, we all deserve death. And when we make our judgments based on those initial appearances, we are not following in the footsteps of our Father in that we are not showing mercy as God has showed us mercy. And this helps us at once to understand more clearly what James is teaching us. He wants us to be like our Father. Again, all of his ethical teaching hangs on the idea that we are to behave as God behaves. As God has revealed what love looks like in Jesus Christ, that's how we are to behave. And as God has revealed what mercy looks like in his great mercy that he has bestowed upon us, so too are we to show mercy to others. And this means that when we're making those initial judgments, it's not only the rich and the poor that we need to be careful to not to judge against. It's also the sinner and particularly those people who perhaps have more visible sins than others, and we make judgments about them, whether we intend to or not. It's when the out-of-wedlock teen mom comes into your congregation. Do you welcome her? Do you treat her with honor? Knowing that she has nothing to give you, no money, no time left over, she's exhausted perhaps, you'll gain no benefit from having her but do you treat her with honor because she is one whom God has called and to one to whom God has shown mercy? If someone who is trying to figure out issues of sexual identity walks into our congregation, if it's visible in the way that they carry themselves, do we treat them with honor as one who is made in God's image? When we have immigrants in our nation, those who are refugees, 
those who have fled and have perhaps come into our country illegally, do we treat them with honor? Because they are people who are made in God's image. They are people upon whom God desires to show mercy. When James puts together the verses, when he talks about um, judgment is without mercy to no one who has shown mercy, judgment is without mercy to no one who has shown no mercy, most scholars think that he's in part quoting Zechariah 7, verses 9 through 10, that he's, he's picking up this theme from the Old Testament, where it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The immigrant, the person who, is, who comes and has nothing to offer, the person who perhaps has broken a law, is one of the ones who stands as our litmus test of when we look and think and speak about these people, how are we behaving, are we treating them with the way that God has treated us? There's a song by the artist John Guerra called Citizens, and it's, honestly, it's, it's one of those overtly political Christian songs. But there's a, a line in it that I think captures this sense really well, where in a prayer to God, it says, Truly you said we were equal, and everyone's heart is deceitful, and everyone born is illegal, when love is the law of the land. We find ourselves under the judgment of God, and we have been shown mercy. Will we show mercy to others? How do you see these people? How do you see the people who are overt sinners, who have broken God's law or our nation's law? How do you view them and their worth? Do you see them as God sees them? Would they be welcome here? And if your answer is still yes, if your answer is yes, they would be welcome, then I think we're faced with another harder question in many ways. Why aren't they here? Why have they gone elsewhere to look for people who will show them love? Why do so many think that the church is a place where what they will face is judgment? by others who have it all together. How do we communicate to those to people the grace of God, the mercy that God wishes to show? And this is not talking about the idea of tolerance or, or just acceptance and not being able to speak against sin. That's a cheap substitute to what's actually on offer here. That's what people go through because they have not received the gospel. They, the good news has not taken roots in their heart. We're not saying that men and women will not be judged. We are saying that we are all judged by the word of God. We all stand under the word of God. We all find ourselves in need of mercy. And if God calls someone into the community of believers, if he is calling them to himself, then we recognize that call upon them and we offer them and show them the same mercy that God has showed us. But we also do it as we proclaim the truth over and over and over again. We don't water down the gospel. We don't try to make it so that it doesn't care about sin at all. 
We've seen that over and over here in James. He wants us to proclaim the truth about what is sin, to name it, to see it destroyed in our lives. But as we go along that journey, there is this call to mercy rather than judgment. Can we as the church do that? Not be a people who somehow think that we have to forsake truth in order to show people kindness. Because James says they go together. Mercy and kindness show themselves together. This is the gospel that we are called to. This is what James calls us to do as a people. To be people who show welcome and mercy to all. And in our culture... Honestly, we're not likely to have a situation like the James was talking about in his church. Unless we go out and look for people to invite, we're not likely to have someone who is truly poor and destitute walk into our doors because they already think they don't belong. We're not likely to have the people who are sinners in the more visible sense who see themselves like the tax collectors and the harlots that Jesus spent time with come in our doors because they already have the message in their hearts that they don't belong. And so part of showing welcome in this way, part of showing the mercy of God that James is telling us that we need to show of being like God is following in the footsteps of our Lord who walked out among the sinners and said, come, I'm inviting you to the kingdom. God has shown mercy upon you. Come and follow me and sin no more. This is the call that James places upon our life. This is the call that the gospel places upon our life because this is the rooted of the character of God. He sent his son to us who were sinners while we were yet sinners to proclaim his mercy, and his love. We must be a people who do the same, who go out into the world with the message of God's mercy and love, who come back again and again to the fact that we have received mercy and therefore we can show it to others. We need to show in our actions, in our lives, in our words, the concluding statement of James, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.